Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for another Nata and Noor conversation. This series is being hosted by Clarion Call, and Clarion Call's whole ambition is to get behind people who are trying to work together for meaningful change that follows a community's call for action. In this series, we're interested in exploring movement building in a range of social issues. We are focusing on the how. We want to step behind the curtain and look at what works, what gets in the way. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians on the lands in which we are meeting today and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I'd also like to acknowledge that all of our work can be strengthened by listening to the voice of our First Nations people and carrying their wisdom and practices into our work as we go forward. I am Sharon Fraser, one of the founders of Clarion Call, and I'm joined today by two remarkable people, Holly Cameron and Bryn Davies. We will be exploring the concept of democracy, what shifts we need to make in our thinking and action to strengthen democracy in our lives and across systems. We'll also be delving into how we build our efforts from small to collective action. So it should be quite a rich conversation, I think. I'm joining today from Jara country, the land of the Jajarung people. Hey, Polly, where are you joining from today? This is Gadigal country, Sharon. So I pay my respects to the Gadigal people and the Eora Nation. Thank you for asking. Thanks, Polly. And what about you, Bryn? You're just down the road, I think. Yeah, I'm also on Jara Country, Sharon, so thanks for inviting us on and I'll pay my respects to the Jajarung clans and their continuing connection to this land around Castlemaine and surrounding areas. Beautiful, beautiful. So as we come into today's conversation, it would be good for us to get a sense of each of you, where you're drawing your information from today. So Polly, could you tell us a bit about yourself and the experiences that you are drawing from for today's conversation? Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. It's such a beautiful, big, broad question. And without going too much into the whole, the Genesis story, my Jewish background and being raised in quite a spiritual household, but you ask the perennial question, why, 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 to a nauseating degree. My more recent background has been working with the Global Philosophy School, the School of Life, which mm -hmm. was started by the philosopher Alain de Baton. And it was actually working within the School of Life in Australia that I came across the, the kind of intellectual giant, really, especially in the area of democracy, AC Grayling. And he first had a conversation with me side of stage about democracy and how we can make it better. And I'd been sitting with the idea of how do we try and, you know, this is the sort of grand statement around how do we make a better world for, you know, 10 years or so myself and looked at self-development, of course, and what role business plays in creating a healthier economy and, and a better future for others. And it was really, I kind of credit AC Grayling as dropping that seed around looking at the political levers that we can also pull to, to see how we can kind of steer the ship. And that's how I landed in this field. Beautiful. Thanks, Polly. Lovely Pleasure. journey. What about yourself, Bryn? Thanks, Sharon. So I guess I came to this conversation through my work in Castlemaine with a community group called Democracy for Dinner. And that's a you know, volunteer 
group that gets together and, and spreads conversations and, and delves into issues that help build a stronger community and a stronger uh, democracy. We started in about 20, uh, I think 13 or 14, maybe, maybe a bit after that, with a, literally a dinner with a friend of ours, brought everyone together and, and kind of gave everyone portfolios to to sort of share the burden of being an informed citizen. And that evolved into a series of events and dinners and activities that we that we we got involved with. And I like to say that we were kind of on the democracy bandwagon before it was cool. So so then we had kind of you know Trump coming in. We've had you know the rise of anti-democracy movements around the world. And it feels like it's become quite the the flavor of the month. You know, we, we are a relatively small group and work across a relatively small area, but do also, you know, publish some newsletters and thoughts that go that go beyond that. And I think for me it just underlines that the biggest challenges facing us, you know, in our communities and generally uh, it's about knowing what to do, but but getting together and agreeing how to do it and collaborating and, and cooperating and, and working together. And those things should be our you know, powerhouse as a, as a species, as humanity, but they seem to be things that are harder and harder to do. So I think mm-hmm. you know, how we strengthen democracy and how we strengthen how we work together is, is what I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm passionate about and interested in. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. And one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation in democracy ourselves as Clarion Call. Hey, Polly, just before I move on, I just didn't know if you wanted to bring in your role with New Democracy, etc. before we move on to some of the content of the questions. Yes, of course. Thanks, Sharon. So where I am now is working for a re- primarily a research and design foundation called the New Democracy Foundation. And they've been around for about 12 years based in Australia, but we're connected globally to a network called Democracy R&D, kind of looking at what are the innovations that already exist or that we can iterate on to improve the way that we make collective decisions, which is kind of how we define democracy really and how we can make those decisions better. So we're very process-driven and a part of or the big chunk of what my work is is leading a campaign called Change Politics, which is bringing about awareness and support for, in particular, deliberative methods for Mm -hmm. how we can improve democracy and a process called Citizens' Assemblies, which I'm sure we'll dive into at some point. Beautiful. Thank you. And you've just given me a lovely segue into the next question, which is really to explore what we mean by democracy. Because Often when you say the word democracy, people think of the political systems or the fact that they vote in council, state or federal elections. Polly, you've introduced the idea that democracy is about how we make decisions together. So I'd really like to explore that definition a bit further and to to hear from each of you about how you define democracy. So Bryn, do you want to add anything to that? It's a really good question. I think when I started delving into these ideas, I felt like I had a rough understanding of what democracy was. And as with anything that you look into in detail, you quickly find out that all of your assumptions fall away when you look at it longer. And, and you know, there's kind of moments where I've had a sort of an almost an existential crisis around what even is this? Like, what it, what is it we're talking about? We, we throw away or throw around the term democracy as if it's, you know, a, a defined and inalienable good and and it's much harder to actually 
get to the essence of, of what it means. And there's a, a, a great book, book that Polly actually lent me called Against Elections by David Van Reebrook, which goes to some of these questions. It talks largely about the citizens' assembly model that, and, and sortition model that Polly was alluding to. But it does go to some of the, the essential questions about what is democracy. And for me, you know, as far as I've got is, is a system of, of collective governance that's accountable to, to people. And there are a number of ways to do that. You can probably add it draws on, you know, the values, expertise and and capabilities in, in the community as well. And what I think we get wrong is that we focus too much on on mechanisms and not mm-hmm. enough on and assume that a that a mechanism is the answer. So if we look at, you know, even the way that the strength of democracy is measured around the world. It's, it's measured by things like the existence of universal suffrage and free and fair elections and those sorts of things. There are a number of ways that you can design a system that can be accountable to the community that it serves and, and also draw on the capabilities, expertise of that community and electoral democracy. Whilst I, I still think it's a really strong model, is only one of those models. Mm, thanks for that. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Polly? Sure. I think Bryn does such a good job of articulating these big, really philosophical questions. I suppose there's two key things for me in this. One is that I don't want people to feel, a big part of my work is to try and prevent people feeling alienated by the term democracy and alienated by political structures and jargon that surrounds it. And so everything that I try and do is around making it more accessible feeling. And so whenever I talk about this it's trying to take it from its kind of lofty towers and bring it down into a really practical realm which is you know how do we make group decisions Mm -hmm. Um, and and leading into that the second part is that it it's not just a theoretical term it's not an ideology it's a very active word and it can be used across a lot of different segments as well so it's about how do we democratize anything we could be democratizing Mm -hmm. our schools we can be democratizing our workplaces and so I feel like it's a very active term as well that we that we can get into which is yeah a a lot about agency for people and accountability of actions Mm, beautiful so for us to step into what democracy could be I'd like us to sit for a little bit in what it currently is. And I'd like us to explore how you see democracy currently and, you know, what's some of the strengths in that and what are some of the things that you think are not serving us well. So, Bryn, you've already talked about the notion that we measure democracy in a particular way that maybe isn't as helpful as others. But I'm just really wanting to explore the current with you now. So, Polly, do you want to have a, have a go at that? Sure, I'd love to. And, Sharon, I love as well that you made mention of let's talk about what is working as well because I think the temptation can be to want to kind of really shred something apart and, and maybe throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And there's a lot to be proud of, especially with our Australian democracy system. You know, we have preferential voting compulsory voting, all of these things that really do kind of help create more infrastructure in the way that we vote and more integrity, I suppose, in the way that democracy is run in this country. And we've been quite innovative historically as well with democracy. So there's certainly things that we can improve, but it's a good starting point to go, look, it's not really all, it's not that terrible, especially compared to maybe earlier democracies that we as a, as a, as a newer kind of federation 
we were able to learn from when we set up democracy in Australia. You know, you look at America, of course, and the troubles that they're facing with gerrymandering and those sorts of quite, you know, entrenched systematic issues with their democracy. And we're a little bit further ahead on that. In saying that, of course, looking for areas of improvement, the big one that I see, and not to be too American-centric in this in this podcast, but looking to perhaps where America is now and where we could potentially be moving if we continue to sort of stagnate, is the kind of the two-party block system, mm. which I think throws up a huge amount of problems. It gets into identity politics and people coming entrenched and not being able to to want to consider the ideas of a quote-unquote, you know, opponent or the other side for fear mm. of, you know, it being a kind of weakness or and, and losing any kind of nuance in the middle. And I think the latest federal election, of course, with the independent movement has been incredibly helpful at breaking that apart a little. So I'm quite optimistic around that. However, as sort of Bryn spoke to about the electoral system, because the only real checks and balance that we have in our political system is going to the ballot box every few years, that's, you know, Mm. the accountability measure. It's a very kind of rough scorecard, if you will, for the, you know, the overall performance of an entire government. And there's not a lot of middle ground there and conversations along the way around specific decisions that will affect people's lives on the ground. Mm. And I think that dissatisfaction has been growing, not just in Australia, but in democracies around the world. And it's it's that engagement piece and, and the fair representation in our politics that is something that if we don't address that, if we keep continuing down the path that we're going around a kind of elitism with our elected mm-hmm. politicians and a lack of any kind of process where ongoing people can be consulted more in the problems that affect their lives, Mm. we'll be going down a path that will put democracy at greater and greater risk. Interesting. And what about from your perspective, Bryn? Yeah, I really like that both you and Polly have started with the question of what's what's working and what's good because I think it's there's a real risk that you know, I think one of the challenges facing you know our democratic systems and there are, there are quite a few of them one is that I don't think we appreciate what we've got I think that's one of the most fundamental challenges that there's an increasing distrust in institutions you know some of which is well founded and a lot of which isn't I, I think and I think it's it's easy to ignore what's effective and what's what's good in our in our systems. And if you ignore that, then you don't fight for it. You don't you don't kind of uh, seek to keep it. You know, you take mm-hmm. for example in Australia, we've got an independent electoral commission. We've got you know, as, as Polly said, a pretty robust electoral system. And you know, you, you can see examples in the US and elsewhere where those those things, whether they're kind of formal institutions or norms are not sufficiently appreciated in the wider public that when they're, you know, when they're put at risk or, mm-hmm. or impacted, there's not enough fight for them, you know, against the, against the, the, the attempts to, to bring them down. So I think we, you know, we, we have a pretty effective government system. We have a highly skilled public service. I would say that in my pay, my day job is a public servant, but obviously not speaking here in that capacity. You know, we've got independent electoral system that allows you know, the, the the good running of elections that a lot of countries don't have. We, you know, we have 
relatively very low corruption across our system. I think the establishment of the Federal Corruption Commission is a really good thing, but I think it's important for us to moderate our language a bit in that, you know, we can say that things we don't like are corrupt and we can say that, you know, there is corruption. And and I suspect there is, you know, small pockets of, of bad things happening, but I think that they're relatively small. And I think, you know, for us to throw around language like, you know, the side we don't like is corrupt is, is actually really dangerous. I think that's, you know, goes to the point that Polly was making before that, you know, it goes away from the essence of democracy, which is the capacity for disagreement and the challenge of ideas and the capacity to, to you know, to disagree with the other side and to, you know, mm-hmm. your idea might not win out in every, in every situation. That's the, that's the challenge of, of democracy. So I think being really clear about where, improvements can be made and what is working well is is critical and i think you know a lot of a lot of what we have in our democratic system in australia is is pretty good and i think you know we're probably getting to this next but you know where it falls down is that we have a kind of in, there's a few different you know major things we have an increasing separation and Polly talks about this a lot i know in the new democracy work increasing separation between you know, people, the community, mm. and and elected officials, and and you know, people don't seem to think that being an elected member is a is you know something that anyone can do. It's a it's a it's a pathway for a you know an elite with, within a political party, and not necessarily representative of our community. And so those those sorts of challenges, and there are many mm. more, are I think where some of the risks in mm. in our system lie. So if if democracy has strengths in our society, institutional democracy has some strengths that you've both talked about in our society. And you've also both raised the notion of who makes decisions and how frequently people are involved in that decision making. And you've both also raised the notion of engagement and perceptions and mindsets that people have around politics and around democracy and who has the right to make the decisions and whether that we could and should be believing them. And you've also both talked about the challenges that that just having the goodies and the baddies in the system present instead of the notion of having a multi-coloured platform that could be a, 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 a democracy palette. So if they if if they are some of the things that are that are playing out that are challenges in the system, where are you seeing or is there a call for change anywhere? And if there is a call for change, what is the call for change and where are you hearing it from? Bryn, do you want to kick off with that? Oh, look, I'll say a couple of very quick things and mm-hmm. then Polly can pick up. I think that there are a number of calls for change. I don't know if they're always particularly coherent. I think there, there are some or don't necessarily agree with each other. Maybe they don't need to either. I think some of the calls to change are that, you know, people don't feel like the system is genuinely a part of them anymore. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, you talked before about systems, Sharon, and, you know, I like to think about the systems that we can, we inhabit and create. Like the, these systems only exist because we have a collective agreement that they exist and they're part of us, like they're extensions of our communities. And so talking about, you know, the government over there or, you know, or a legal system, whatever it is, as, as something separate from us, I think is the, is the wrong way of thinking about it. And so I think that the sense that, that our systems aren't connected to people is one of the calls for change. I think some of the calls for change are possibly, particularly in the US, are misguided. They're really just against a, a direction that you don't like and mm-hmm. using 
democracy, you know, on both sides as a way of as a way of of arguing for, you know, for for a different a different outcome and you know, increasing lack of tolerance between viewpoints that manifests in you know we we can't have our democracies working this way is is an unhelpful call for change. Mm. Interesting, isn't it, that there are calls for change that are happening, but we can't assume that all of those calls are about the betterment of the whole, that some of those calls for change are divisive and also maybe about targeting a particular cohort's agenda. Interesting, Bryn. What about from your perspective, Polly? Where are you seeing the call for change? Yeah, I mean, it's such an exciting question. A lot of the work that I do is around exactly this you know what is out there what is the possibility that we can kind of reach forward towards and and bring it closer to us and the movement that I'm heavily invested in which Brid knows exactly what I'm going to talk about is this deliberative democracy space and that's an umbrella term that encompasses quite a few different processes and and practices but there's there's principles that are connected throughout and and there's kind of a funnel of, of engagement there that I can kind of give a bit of a broad brush stroke around because it is absolutely what gets me up in the morning and what you know makes me hopeful deliberative democracy and it is a response isn't it it's a it's a way of of stepping into addressing something what's the something what's the call so uh, it's such an interesting one because they're normally instigated because there's a complex thorny kind of intractable problem that's got real you know outcomes Mm. negative outcomes for a community or a place a whole people that politics the way that it currently works can't quite tackle and that might not be just because they don't have the right answers. I mean, climate is a good example of this. You know, we have plenty of experts and and royal commissions kind of speak to this as well. You know, you can set mm-hmm. someone out, do all the fact finding, you know, go on the information hunt, produce a document that says this is exactly what we should be doing. But because we have a current political system that ensures that your your job, your security in that position is completely reliant on getting votes not on solving hard problems, makes it very difficult. This is such a a kind of simplistic analogy, but it's kind of an effective one. If you imagine that, you know, if you're a parent and your, you know, survival of being a parent is completely dependent on the vote from your child about whether you're a good parent that day, you probably parent a little differently. You know, there might be dessert before dinner or something. (laughs) And it's harder to make those trade-offs. And, you know, it's it's a helpful analogy, I think, just in capturing that sentiment that, there are tough decisions and I think we as people can get very frustrated going, you know, this is the right answer. How do they not see it? We should be going in that direction. And if you pause for a moment and look at the bigger picture, you'll realise that a lot of politicians, they can make that decision and then they'll be out of a job probably quite quickly. And so that's what we're up against and and deliberation is so helpful in that instance because it's putting the decision-making into the hands of a representative mix of people. So it de-escalates the political risk for leaders Mm. to make the call about something because it's not then them having to stand out on their own and say, yeah, we're going to get rid of negative gearing or something Mm. uh, and risk losing a whole swathe of the voters. It's going, well, you know, we trusted a group of people that look like you. There'll be someone in that group that looks like you. This is what they came up with, with a lot of time and access to resources and information, discussed it not as a 
two-party thing, but as a whole mix of people. And there were trade-offs they had to consider and this was their consensus. And it's, it's, it's a methodology that's being used with a lot of success around the world for, you know, those sorts of reasons. Mm, beautiful. Can I add to that before we go to solutions, Sharon? Is that all right? Absolutely, Ring. I think the issue is that, you know, there is a whole community and ecosystem of information and knowledge that comes to bear in, in you know, in creating a democracy. It's not just, you know, the election. It's not just the, you know, the elected members and the parliament and the executive and the cabinet. It's, it is how do people in the democracy get their information? What information do they access? How do they understand it and, and unpack it? And how do they form views? How do we debate and share information between us? And that's a space, I think, that largely the group that I'm involved with acts within, less so at the kind of structural level, although we're obviously interested in that. And, you know, we can't have a functioning democracy without a community that is you know, sufficiently informed and capable of understanding nuanced debate. And, and so the, the parent-child analogy is a good one because, you know, it's possibly a little bit binary, but the community needs to have, the, you know, it needs to learn and grow and be part of this as well and can't be just reliant on the parent all the time. But at the same time, you know, our leaders who are there might have to make the difficult decision of having, you know, dinner before dessert you know, rather than the other way around. And I think that, you know, what it says is that, you know, this goes to the calls for change. I think that over you know, the 300 odd years that we've had electoral democracies, they've improved and changed and got better. But we're in a very different world now of, of how information is distributed and how people access information. And and also, I think those who, who are active participants in the electoral system and seeking election have, have learned what it takes to get elected as opposed to what it takes to lead and, and govern mm-hmm. a, a country. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to adjust for those incentives. You need to continue to adjust so that you're, you're incentivizing good decision-making as opposed to incentivizing you know, winning the election. And, and I don't think our systems have quite adapted for that, for that change. Mm-hmm. Mm, beautiful. So you've both already started leaning to some of the ways that, that we can respond to this call to change. Like if the call to change is around the complexity, if the call to change is that we actually can't deliver on the social changes that we need unless we shift how decisions are made and who makes those decisions. And it's been really interesting because I know, Polly, you're busting to talk about and we'll give you plenty of space to talk about deliberative processes. And Bryn, you've also brought in the notion of it's broader than the point of making decision and how we make decisions. It's how we sit in our whole society and in our community. How do we become informed? How do we participate? How What paradigm we hold our political leaders in? And what, what is the um, the the reason that that somebody the the skills that we are forcing for someone to be elected is it the fact that they can win an election or is it the fact that they can actually deliver for the community so there are there are layers of 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 ways that we can think about alternatives for how we approach democracy so i'm really keen to to lean into this a bit and to think about what are all the alternatives what are and it might be that you're seeing you're doing it yourself or you're seeing or reading something that's happening what are the alternatives that are being put up to help respond to this call to change you want to go first polly (laughs) am i jumping in because i'm busting to talk about it (laughs) bust away i'll say one thing which is that in your list the one thing that that i think could be added to that is 
how we relate to each other. Like it's, uh-huh. you know, how do we relate to each other first is the most fundamental thing before we even get to systems, but I'll let Polly go next. Beautiful. Thanks, Bryn. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing to riff off for sure. And I think, you know, there's, of course, all of the personal skills that we need to be developing, critical thinking and understanding bias and, and you know, reading widely, you know, making sure that we're looking at where we're getting our sources from and making sure that they're varied. But that maybe this is a fun point of difference, Bryn, from what we were talking about before. It's nice to kind of stretch these out so it, it doesn't feel too much like we're going, you know, beating the same drum. But I think you're such a good exemplar of the kind of active citizen that wants to be informed and 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 get involved and i really want to acknowledge that not everyone has that ability and that scope and and the capacity to do that and it's it's an unrealistic expectation to have of a whole population and so i think the the core thing for me and and kind of it's kind of like the inception of democracy for dinner it sounds like you know you were trying to delegate you know people being learned on on certain areas but the beauty of this process that that I that I'm advocating for, which is called the citizens' assembly, is that you're not then asking everyone in the population to become deeply informed about a topic and not expecting everyone to take, you know, it's just impractical to think that everyone at scale is going to be able to become a deeply informed citizen on every single topic that politicians are going, you know, before they make mm. any decision. And so Whilst I think it's great that everyone develops those skills, what we see is exciting as well is that and and the people that go through these processes develop those skills within them. But it's it's a wonderful way to I, I suppose to increase trust in the decision making process and to avoid kind of shallow thinking and and a and a bit of nuance with my parent child analogy because I totally acknowledge that it can sound really patronizing which it's not meant to it's really about you know it's hard to to have the time to weigh up lots of considerations and it's it's kind of around I suppose yeah this notion that I think often for people their five second ten second opinion on something is going to be very different to one where they've had plenty of time to consider opposing views. That's not a judgment on a person individually. That's just a kind of a matter of fact. Mm. And so when we do things like referendums, and of course we've got a big one coming up, they can sometimes be lauded as, you know, this hearing the people speak and we need to hear the people speak and give them a voice. And whilst, you know, notionally I'm all for that idea, I think we need to go one step further and it's not just we need to hear every you know we need to hear from everyone I think we need to hear you know from everyone more deeply and that can be a challenge to create at scale and so citizens assemblies I think are a really good kind of antidote they're not the only solution of course we need there's a lot of others out there and I hear about different you know longer term parliamentary terms mixed parliamentary seating was one I came across recently which I thought was quite fun rather than having them sitting separately in the house you know you mix them all up you know is there anything I suppose to break down those sorts of barriers and create a more mixed society because fundamentally we are better when we mix. Mm. <laughs> that, that's enough of me beating the drum, I think, on me. That's mm. a beautiful drum to beat. <laughs> what about from your perspective, Bryn, are there any other alternatives or any other things that you have read about or see happening that you think are really powerful for us to consider if we want to strengthen democracy? 
Yeah, I think I'll pick up on a couple of things that Polly said around, you know, people make really different decisions in different decision-making environments. So then there's really good research on on that. And so it goes to the point of what what mechanisms we choose really matter and you know, what, what information or env- environments give people matter. So, you know, a, a poll on Twitter of, you know, do you think this should happen is not likely to be a good, unless it's a really black and white, simple thing, it's not likely to be a good way to get a, a deep understanding of, uh, of people's views on an issue. And you know, that goes to sort of simplistic and, and shallow democratic thinking versus deeper democratic thinking, which goes to the deliberative approaches that Polly was mentioning and, and those challenges. So, you know, you take the same question that, you know, put to a shallow poll and you give it to a, a bunch of people over a long period of time with lots of information and they may reach a very different decision. And that's, that's really important because, you know, it goes to, it goes to you know, what is, what is a genuine view of, of communities in, on an issue and what is a, a good way of getting to that. And the challenge there is, you know, one between you can't have deep democratic processes on everything. It just becomes, you know, unwieldy. And I completely agree with Polly's point earlier. You know, that that's where the challenge of, you know, I like to say we all need to be informed citizens. And, you know, I think our website says democracy is not a spectator sport. You know, everyone's got to... So putting a little bit of the emphasis there, but I totally agree. Like, and there's been plenty of times in my life where, you know, life is just hard enough and busy enough as it is to spend all the time doing those other things too is just, you know, is is unrealistic. So how can we create... So we will necessarily have to create proxies for people's views, which is what, you know, deliberative processes can be. You know, I do think that there's some potential for, you know, new technologies to provide more active engagement, but they have to be used really carefully so that we're not just getting shallow opinion polls on on everything. In terms of, you know, what systems... I mean, I, I think that this is not going to be very good satisfying answer but i just feel like a lot of the foundations need to be better set first and the foundations are like we were saying before how we relate to each other how we how we understand Mm -hmm. difference how we you know talk and and communicate about things how we you know respect other other opinions and and what sort of information we we have access to and and those things i i think are the are the bedrocks of of democracy and then you can have better or worse systems that you create on top of it you can Mm. you can create systems that you know mix electoral representation with deliberative processes and and direct democracy as part of it and you know there are a number of ways you could do that but but you kind of have to work at all of those levels you have to be thinking about how how we are, how we're, you know, allowing difference and debate to occur, and how we are having those conversations amongst ourselves, and and you know, there are challenges on all sides of of the debates. I think often well-meaning, but but sometimes end up being, you know, the unintentional shutting down of arguments and unintentional, which which tends to, mm. you know, tends to kind of polarize people further. Mm, beautiful. So you've. You've both talked a lot about the personal and the need to hold the personal and about how to come together as collectives to make decision. And we've talked broadly about the systems, uh, the broader political system. I'd like to sort of focus in a little bit now on the local. So, you know, we have talked a lot about broader political systems. 
and we've talked about individual, I'd really like to lean into a bit some of that community stuff that you were talking about, Bryn. So if we're thinking about local and we're thinking about community, what does it look like to strengthen democracy at a community level? Look, I think some examples of, of you know, strengthening democracy that's been really effective at a community level are things like the Voices movement. So the Voices Vindai, you know, started a, a range of those local, genuine local democracy movements, getting a representative that is there, therefore a, a true representative of the community. And they did that through, you know, the often talked about now kitchen table conversation mm-hmm. approach, you know, talking at people in a in a big public forum you know, tends not to shift opinions or to build build connection, whereas sitting around a kitchen table and having a conversation does. So, mm. so those sorts of, of things at a local level, I think, are are really effective. And and I think you know the the model of of being open to talking to people you might not necessarily agree with, and and thinking hard about what is the best possible take on on the other side's opinion, I think, are, are critical. But you know, having having a model where you're relating not just on a on a topic, but also at a personal level, is where you're most likely to be influential mm. at a at a grassroots from a grassroots perspective. Beautiful, thanks. And what about from your perspective, Polly? Yeah, I love the question. Thinking about community has taken up a big chunk of my year so far, and what we're doing with change politics and our campaign at changepolitics.org.au is around speaking to those people that might be listening now going okay well this all sounds lovely what it is what you know what is it that I can that I can do to get involved and we are partnering with Active Democracy Australia and they have a built-in directory so you can put in your electorate find out if an existing group in your area exists or you can start mm-hmm. one up yourself mm-hmm. and then we've got a range of options that we're encouraging people on a local level to do. We've given these as options and guidelines as ways that we can offer, you know, then support and resources around, but any level of creativity is is kind of up to you as, as the community member. But it can be as simple as, you know, we've got an ongoing petition about signing support for the use of citizens' assemblies in Australia, mm-hmm. and every number that goes towards that signature and that petition helps give us, you know, a very strong metric to prove to politicians that people care about this idea because, as we discussed before, of course, mm. you know, politicians care about those numbers. But then we're developing guides for how to have a deliberative dinner, kind of speaking and, and riffing off what, you know, democracy for dinner and what Brim was talking about with the kitchen table discussions. You know, what's some framework and principles that can be applied for those conversations that you want to have with a range of people on a difficult and perhaps, you know, polarising topic Mm -hmm. and then also the output of that can help with the advocacy around you know if we as a community you can scale this up you know there's a community group in Redcliffe that are looking in Queensland that are looking at development going on in their community that they're quite divided around and they recognize that the deliberative principles and citizens assembly projects would be helpful Mm -hmm. and local communities can be enormously powerful at mobilising to get local council on board with those projects. Also because local council, you know, they have smaller budgets and they have smaller staff. So if there are people in a community that can help shoulder some of that burden, that goes a long way. And what's exciting, particularly in Victoria, which might be fun to point out, considering as well you're both there, (laughs) is the Local Government Act that came through in 2020, which mandated the use of 
deliberation on a on a range of kind of key issues in that area. So now local council are actually compelled to use deliberation in in tackling these big issues around budget and 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 housing development. And there's a range of you know successful markers for the way that they're implementing that. But if you're listening and you're at a local level wanting to do something, reaching out to your local council member and asking about the deliberative processes that they're using in their LGA is a great place to start as well. But if you head to our campaign, you'll see that we're starting to develop those, you know, options for how to actually act and start to to move this move this forward. Okay, beautiful. So how do we, and I know that you've talked a little bit, Bryn, about the voice and the, the development of voice from kitchen table conversations to have a broader impact. If we can explore what it is to go from having a small thing happening to having things happen at scale, particularly in the environment that you've each talked about of the current paradigms and the current mindsets that hold how things are done in place. So, for example, I I know that you've talked about and it's a a fantastic thing to have the Local Government Act changed. And I see a lot of particularly rural and regional councils both not being able to participate in that holistically Mm. because of lack of resources and or doing what has been done before and calling it deliberative processes. So, Mm. you know, it doesn't – changing something can help at a a policy Mm. level – and it doesn't always. So, how do you take mm-hmm. how do you take these ideas from isolated or projects to actually build a movement for change around something? That's your space, Polly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to sound a bit silly, but I think it's it's storytelling often. Actually, mm-hmm. the more that people can connect to the ideas and make them real, the more that they'll get behind them, understand them, and push it forward. And the oldest way in the book to get people on board with something is to tell the story, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's a big part of what we're trying to do. We've got a campaign launching soon, which is trying to tell the story that these processes help people see that when you come together as a group of people and collectively have the responsibility of a decision, that it's not just you wearing the cape, going out and signing the autographs, or having to take the fall of something not working and therefore limiting your, you know, risk appetite. No, it's you as a group, as a collective, coming together and working out your differences. I mean, we see people in tears at the end of these processes, hugging, embracing, thinking, you know, sharing that at the beginning, it was on something like nuclear energy or, you know, obesity and health with, with Victoria State and feeling like, there are people in the room that they'll never be able to see eye to eye on. And then going through that process of months and hours spent with each other, realising that, you know, there can be, when you treat people with respect, there can be such respectful experiences that come out of it. One of the, there's a documentary that's being made in the States, which is really exciting. I would love to do a screening of when it's ready by a group in America that are very invested in these processes, also called Of By Four. And they ran a process last year in one of the southern states in the US on COVID response. And they had groups of people coming together to ask this question, you know, how should we as a state respond to COVID? And there were people in the small groups. There was a man there in his 40s that 
you know, had the big Federation flag behind him and, you know, all the stuffed animals on the wall and was very adamant that COVID didn't exist and the whole thing was a hoax. Mm -hmm. And he was in a small group with a widowed mother with three small children, African-American woman whose husband had just died from COVID and now she was having to raise the kids on her own. And they were in a group together having to have a conversation about how the state responded to COVID. And I, and you can imagine if that was a conversation being had over Twitter and 22 characters, it would have gone quite differently. But they were mm-hmm. forced into a room, into a space and, a, and an extended period of time where they had to collectively come up with a decision. And the impact not only on the quality of the recommendations that come out of a group that are mixed and well-informed, but the quality of the interactions just say so much. And I think telling that story as much as possible in as many different ways as possible is crucial. You know, people need to feel like they can vision into a better mm. future. You know, that whole see it to believe it thing, which can sound so naff, is so, so true. And I think that's why, you know, we're adamant at Change Politics in our work at New Democracy. And it speaks so beautifully to how you're holding this conversation, Sharon, is that rather than spending too much time talking about what it is that we don't like and what isn't working, it's let's talk about some solutions and ways forward. And that's what we try and do and that's what Citizens Assembly projects do. And I think the way that we do that is, (laughs) sounding so repetitive now, is through storytelling. I'll Mm. close there. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. What about from your perspective, Bryn? I mean, How do we get I, this yeah, yeah. to move at scale? The reason I handballed it to Polly was because I think we haven't had a, a heap of success in that and probably because we haven't really tried either. Like we're very local, you know, place-based for a lot of our work. We have events that, you know, people come to in person in our local town and and that seems to work. You know, we've re- relatively recently started exploring bigger issues and we've got a, you know, a Substack newsletter. You can look up Rethinking Democracy or Democracy for Dinner on Substack. And, and that's you know, got a wider reach. And we promote it via Twitter as well. People, you know, from the across the world have engaged with that. But again, it's a, it's a particular community. Like it's a community of people interested in talking about democracy. And it's, you know, it's connected me with a bunch of of academics across the world and the guy who ran the citizens assemblies in Ireland is now following us on Substack so that's great and but you know it's it's and it's really helpful to me to kind of explore those ideas but within mm-hmm. a pretty a pretty defined community of interest mm-hmm. uh, it's not something that I can walk down the street to the to the the pub and you know ask people to talk to me about what does you know democracy mean and how should we redesign our systems to better represent people it just doesn't make any sense so and i think we i'd say we have similar challenges with our activities locally there is a real risk of of having you know a a group that largely agrees with each other we try to kind of you know challenge that a bit but we don't we don't get people you know who are you know having dinner at the Cumby, wandering down to a discussion about, you know, whatever the topic is. You know, it tends to be people who are who are actively involved and engaged. So that's, you know, how you spread those bigger conversations is, you know, is one of the challenges. We are we are going to try and pick it up as part of the, the, the conversations around the voice and the referendum that's coming up later this year. So trying to 
you know, do some kitchen table conversations on on that. And, you know, starting with, you know, I've got I've got friends who wouldn't attend an event that, that we put on, but in, they might if I invite them to have a conversation, you know, at our at our house or, or something like that. Trying to kind of, you know, and going through the footy club that my my son plays in and going through the, you know, that sort of thing to to start to use some of those networks to engage. And it's probably not as extreme as the two ex- the examples of you know, the COVID denier and the widower that Polly was talking about. But, um, you know, the, I, I think the extremes are really hard to bring together. You probably do need like several days, but people who are kind of not sure on, you know, either sides of the of the middle is, you know, where I think you can have some meaningful conversations and start to spread, you know, start to spread a way of, of working, a way of, a way of discussing things that can be, that can be effective. Mm. So can I just summarise what I'm hearing back from you in terms, you both, in terms of growing the movement around this, you're saying that there is power in story and there's also power in issue. So, you know, Polly, you talked about the COVID was the issue. So something that I feel as an individual strongly about and want to do something about it. I might go in thinking my way or the highway, but I actually have a connection to it. So there's a connection to an issue. So there's passion in there. There is the power of storytelling and that storytelling that you talked about, Polly, wasn't something Nirvana about this is how the end state could be, but it was about this is how you can get to the next step. This is what the Mm. next step looks like. This is how people actually Mm. do that together so that Mm. it was a concrete example about real people doing the next step. And I think the other thing that you've talked about that I found really interesting in terms of the movement building is that notion of of identifying the people who are holding this movement with you, which are the people that Bryn's talking about. So those that are strongly engaged and will come to these conversations, they are not they are not to be pushed aside because they're not the whole, but that there's great importance in holding and nurturing and utilizing these people who are already on the journey because they will know people that might be able to spread the message for you. The other thing that I'm really interested in hearing from you both is in all of this conversation about, you know, what is this democracy thing, what's currently happening, what's the call for change, what do you see as the differences that are being lent into and how this is being shifted from isolated actions into movements. If there was one piece of wisdom that you would like to share with everybody to have them as they go forward into this work, what would that be? I'm happy to jump in here, Bryn, and say have some more thinking time. It's something that someone said to me a long time ago, and I can't recall where it came from, but it's such a beautiful visual, which is that you can't shake hands with a closed fist. And We've sort of, I think, spoken, it's quite a strong theme, I think, in the conversation that we've been having. And I think it's a really pertinent one because there's a sense, I think, also of responsibility there that you need to do the work as well to unclench your fist to shake that hand. And that as much as you might feel like you've got solutions and the answers, you know, I firmly believe that there's no such thing as one right answer and one right opinion and one right way of doing everything. And I don't know if many people do, and, you know, there's maybe some extremes that sit in that corner, but mostly, you know, we are people that want to be heard as well. 
And if we want to be heard, then we have to be able to listen. And the more that we can kind of embody that and, you know, pause and slow down conversations and be brave at the way that we enter them so that we allow that person to finish that thought and, you know, we question our own kind of ideas as well with some rigor, the more chance that we're going to have to, you know, to be able to shake hands with another. And I think that's that's one wisdom that I find challenging myself that I'm trying to work on in in my daily life and it's I think it's a nice practical one to walk away with. Mm. Thanks, Polly. What about from you, Bryn? Look, mine's probably really similar. And before I go there, I mean, there's probably lots of things you could say about, you know, a system and the structural stuff and not throwing out what's working, but recognising and being really precise about what improvements can be made and where they should be. But the one I actually wrote down when you asked the question was really similar to Polly's, but coming from a different perspective and sort of paraphrasing Jonathan Rourke, whose book I recently read, In Defence of Truth, is is the book. Essentially, he, he said that the more passionate you are, the more likely you are to be wrong. And so having a degree of humility as you approach anything is, I think, a really, really important reminder. And the same with Polly. That's something that I, I challenge myself with all the time. Like the more, the, the more you feel you're 100% certain on, it, on something, the more likely you are to be, to be wrong. So, so approaching anything with a, that degree of humility, I think, is, is probably the, the key message. Mm, beautiful. So today, I think we've been on a really beautiful exploration about democracy and how it is currently being played out, what is the call for change and how we're leaning into that. I think it's really powerful, some of the concepts that you've both brought into this and what it's really made me think of as we're going through is how much our thinking, our mindsets, our attitudes, our beliefs hold our own individual behaviour, the behaviour of our community, as well as the broader system. So we've had a lot of conversation about that. One of the implied things that I think we've had in today's conversation that we haven't lent into very deeply, but there's been a lot of implication about power and who holds what power and shifting the power of decision-making from individuals who might be elected or in positions of privilege to a collective decision-making. And there's also been some implications, I think, on, on some of the power pieces when you're talking about how you shift conversations to kitchen table conversations and what you do at a local level versus a national level. Now, because I've, I've actually been seeing that theme throughout the conversation and haven't brought it in, I just wouldn't mind you giving you each the opportunity to talk about that concept, about how you're seeing power held or the shift in power in the shift in how we're holding our democracy. Yeah. Sorry, Brent, did you want to jump in? (laughs) I'm happy to go either way. I mean, I I feel like a couple of things come to my mind. I mean, I think you're completely right, you know, the, the how we understand and you know recognize our power is is a critical part of it i mean one of the things that i would say in response to that is don't underestimate like don't undervalue your power in a democracy like i think it's easy to use language that essentially separates us from the systems that we create and that's not helpful i think we are part of it and we have the power to affect it it's not not easy, but I think I think just talking as if these are you know great big systems that come down from above and we can't affect them. It, you know that's that's a 
that's an autocracy, not a democracy. And so let's let's talk as if we're part of it and recognize our power. And also, you know, recognizing the power that you wield in in you know conversations to go back to our our point before. You know, are you are you, you know, maybe with good intentions, but you know, using shame or, or shutting down a, a, deba- a debate rather than opening it up. I think that you know that that part of it is is really critical as well to to recognize that you know we all we all have power in in the way that we engage with with these these sorts of conversations and you know we should we should look at good ways to wield it beautiful you're reminding me of a a paper called the water of systems change by Kenny uh, Kramer and Senge who talk yep. about how we're all fish and that we're all in the same water Yep. You know, you're very much reminding me of that. Polly, the question of power and how you see power being held in this conversation about democracy. Mm, I mean, it's such a big one. My mind immediately went into, you know, how are we defining power and the layers of power, power over versus power with. Yeah, I think what Bryn is saying is is spot on. And you that's a good prompt. I read that many years ago, the reference that you made then, Sharon, I have to go back and listen to it. But I think it's interesting, I suppose, the connection of power and leadership when you're thinking about democracy and the democratic structure. You know, you have to question, I suppose, and I think it's shifting, but the people that politics attracts and that really politics ideally should be quite, quite boring it should be something really humble around how do we make improve the lives and the place of the people that we, you know, we're looking after, that we're take, caretakers of. But politics really isn't that. I mean, at the moment it's, it's about winning and it is about, I suppose, gaining and maintaining power. So how do we separate power from decision-making is something that I think is really important. And when you have kind of shared power that's one of the you know the most powerful ways I suppose to do that and you know what Bryn and I have been speaking mostly to in this conversation is around yeah I suppose dispersing that and how you disperse that I think is critical so who is being chosen we have these these tiny little interventions within citizen assembly processes where we'll ask people to raise their hand and nominate themselves for something and those people will then be chosen to nominate people within the group to stand up and speak to the you know the 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 process that they've been to and they'll be kind of the they'll end up being the the spokespeople for that particular you know moment rather than which is our way I suppose of intervening around how people normally Mm. gravitate towards power and those people that do and we see that in schools as well you know when you have school captains and at university with university politics. And so I suppose, yeah, differentiating decision-making and power and leadership and, and teasing that out is, is, a, is an important part of unpacking that conversation more. But so it's a big topic. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. I might add one more thing if I can, Sharon, just going at the other level. There's another really good book that I recommend to people, which is called How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And it's a really readable book. That's the best thing about it. Quite concerning and scary at times. But 
their their academics have looked at democracies across the world for for decades, and they boil down the success of a democracy into two fundamental elements. And one is mutual tolerance, which is what we've mm-hmm. talked about quite a lot in the conversation, and the other is forbearance. So not exercising all of the power that you have to, but being being judicious about the, how you exercise power. So you may have the power to redesign this boundary so that your party gets elected, or you may have this power to shut down the debate and only have a debate about the thing that you like. But not exercising all of your power and allowing space for others is is the second fundamental that they see in, uh, in democracy. So I think those it's really interesting, uh, worth, worth a read, and they, they analyse how you know, democracies do or don't conform to those fundamentals. And that's, you know, but, but it goes to that sense of, you know, how we relate and how we use power at the essence mm-hmm. of democracy. Beautiful. I think that they are, are two beautiful principles around how we work together and how we utilise our power. That's a beautiful spot to wind up today's conversation. So I just wanted to thank you both. I found that really interesting and it was really a beautiful journey going on that conversation with you both today. So thank you both for your time, Bryn Davies and Can Holly I make a Cameron. Quick plug at the, before we go. So you we certainly talked a can. lot about you know building democracies within community. On the seventeenth of May, we've got Tim Hollow coming down. He's written a book called Living Democracy, which is very much at the democracy at a community level, not at the structural and system level. It's like, how do we relate to each other? He's coming to Castlemaine 17th of May to talk about his book and talk about how we build a social ecosystem. So it'd be great for people who are local to come along to that. Look it up on democracyfordinner.org or send us an email, info at democracynumber4dinner.org. Thanks very much for your time, Bryn. Much appreciated today for stepping out and really being involved in this rich conversation. And thanks very much to you too, Polly. Is there anything that you'd need to you'd like to give a bit of a plug about before we wind up? I think I, I mentioned it earlier in, but for those that are interested, look up changepolitics.org.au. You'll find us and my contact details in there. Always up for a conversation with someone. Beautiful, beautiful. And just to finish our holy trinity of plugs, mm-hmm. we're presenting this from Clarion Call and our endeavours are for people to work together and to work differently together to help tackle some of the complex social issues that we're sitting with in Australia. So, and you can find us at clarioncall.com.au or you can email us at info at clarioncall.com.au. All right then, go well and enjoy the rest of your day.